Well, today is our last study in the Doctrine of the Covenants. And so our final verse that relates to that is out of Ezekiel 37.26. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. Now, of course, as you read the context of Psalm uh, of Ezekiel 37, you see that he's talking about um, the new covenant. And so the covenant of peace or the new covenant are uh, the same thing. And um, the covenant of peace, which is the covenant of peace between God and his people, is a covenant that is everlasting. It never ends. It goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. And you know what's interesting is that other than the the old covenant, all the covenants are everlasting covenants. Noahic covenant is said to be an everlasting covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is said to be an everlasting covenant. The Davidic covenant is said to be an everlasting covenant. And the new covenant is said to be an everlasting covenant. And the reason why they're everlasting is because they're all covenants that are redemptive, that through them redemption, salvation comes. Uh, the old covenant was the only covenant through which salvation was not promised, nor did salvation come. Um, and so, uh, anyway, uh, the new covenant is also called the everlasting covenant. It's also called the covenant of peace. And... Um, You'll see in in Ezekiel, uh, in that context, as you read around that verse, uh, he talks about having, and David, my servant, shall rule over them forever. Uh, Well, who is David? David's been dead for, (laughs) you know, hundreds of years by this time. Um, And, of course, the answer is it's referring to Jesus, the son of David. So, um, anyway, uh, it's a great chapter. really encourage you to read the whole chapter. Okay? All right, um, any questions, comments, or observations? Okay, all right. Let's get started with our Sunday school lesson. Now, uh, how many of you remember to bring your uh, thing back? I have a few extras here. Has everybody got one? Okay, I don't think Kim has one, so I'll give her one. Braxton can read it to her. Oh, yeah, you guys weren't here last week either. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You bet. Anybody else? Everybody else was good. So we know who the bad people are. Didn't bring theirs back. We'll remember that. It's on your record. Okay. All right. We are, <clears throat> what we did is we studied through the book, The Garden of Eden to the Glory of Heaven, which talked about the biblical covenants. We spent many, many months going through that book, and uh, we completed our study, and I thought it would be good to go back and just do a bird's-eye review of the total content of the book, and so I sought to summarize in six pages uh, the substance of a 200-page-plus book uh, and just pick up the very big highlights. Now, last time, uh, we got through the first four pages of this review, and I'm not going to reread all of that to you again, but I do want to uh, look at the very first page. And I want to just talk about that first page 
again. And the reason why is because it sets a context for the last couple of pages that we're going to go over, okay? So let's talk about the importance of covenants. Uh, our author said the covenants provide the central organizing structure of the Bible. And so if we're going to ever understand our Bible and how it all fits together, we have to understand the covenants. If you're ignorant of the covenants, you'll never make any sense out of the Bible. You'll never be able to organize it into any kind of coherent um, uh, systematic um, system of, of teaching and belief and practice. So as we said, just as the skeleton is the central organizing principle of the Bible, uh, of the body, so the covenants are the central organizing principle of the Bible. Not only do they provide the central organizing structure of the Bible, they unify and explain the unfolding story of redemption that it contains. What is the Bible about? It is about the story of redemption. What is the Bible about? It's about the story of salvation. It's about God saving man. That's the whole story of the Bible. Now, how does that story unfold? Well, it unfolds through the covenants. Because, as it goes on to say, through them, the benefits of Christ's redeeming work are conveyed and the centrality of his person is set forth. And so what we have in the covenants is an explanation of how God redeems man, and through those covenants, that redemption is conveyed to man. And as we said, if you're not in a covenant with God, then you're not his saints, you're not his people, and you're not going to be gathered together unto him. So not only do the covenants tell the story, the covenants convey the benefits of salvation, okay? And then finally, they set forth the centrality of the person of Jesus Christ. Every one of the covenants is about Christ and the saving work he is either going to do or in the case of the new covenant that he has done. So um, the, the, the covenant with Noah is a picture of salvation from the wrath of God. Um, the Abrahamic covenant uh, tells us about the seed that is to come, who is Jesus Christ, who's going to give us the land and convey to us the blessing of salvation, the land of the new heavens and new earth, and convey to us the blessings of salvation. The Davidic covenant tells us that Jesus is going to be an everlasting king to rule and reign in the kingdom of God forever. And then, of course, the new covenant tells us about his substitutionary sacrifice that makes uh, salvation from our sins possible. So the importance of covenants, they provide the central organizing structure of the Bible. They unify and explain the unfolding story of redemption that it contains. Through them, the benefits of Christ's redeeming work is conveyed. And in them, the centrality of the person of Jesus Christ to all of that is set forth. So without the covenants, you don't have the Bible. The Bible is a book of covenants. It's what it is, pure and simple. That's why this is so critical to understand. Then we talked about the definition of a covenant. And we said a covenant is a sovereign, gracious, oath-sworn promise, which defines the relationship between God and his people. And you notice I underlined the part where it says oath-sworn promise because that's the very essence 
of what a covenant is. They're sovereign in that God alone initiates them, all five of those covenants. God came to people and said, hey, I am going to make a covenant with you. People don't make covenants with God. They don't waltz up to God and say, hey, God, I'm going to make a covenant with you. You don't do that to God. You may do that with an equal. We see Abimelech approaching Abraham and saying, hey, I want to make a covenant with you. And, um, you know, they, they go through the, the routine. But we don't approach God and we don't impose covenants on God. He imposes covenants on us. He sets the terms. He initiates the process. And he determines who the participants are and are not. And then, of course, they're gracious in all of the covenants. Benefits are conveyed to us that we do not deserve. It's interesting to note that God made no covenants with the fallen angels. There's no, no plan of redemption for them. There's no Genesis 3.15 for them. And so when we say the covenants are gracious, what we mean by that is that in them and through them, God gives us benefits saving benefits that we do not deserve. And then, of course, these covenants define the relationship between God and his people. They set out the terms upon which we may approach God and God will have dealings with us. All right? And then we talked about the five major covenants of the Bible, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Old Covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. All these covenants were necessary because man failed to keep God's command in the Garden of Eden, and they are the unfolding of God's promise of redemption declared in Genesis 3.15. Now, if there had never been a fall, there would have never been any need for covenants. As far as I can tell from the scriptural record, God has no covenants with the unfallen angels. And so... Um, the reason why the covenants were necessary is because the fall occurred. And what the covenants are is the unfolding of God's promised redemption declared in Genesis 3.15 when he said he would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And so uh, right there at the, at the very uh, beginning of the fall, God says, I'm going to send someone to undo all this and fix it. Thus, our next sentence. The covenants are all about God restoring mankind back to the purity in which he created them, restoring them back to the land that he had prepared for them, and restoring them back to the relationship with himself for which they were first created. And so it's kind of like God made a brand new car and Satan wrecked it, and God's in the process of restoring it. Okay, Crude analogy, but God made the human race. He made them pure. He gave them a wonderful land, namely Eden. And he had a perfect relationship with them. And so they were sinless. They had this wonderful land in which they lived. And they had this wonderful relationship with God. Satan came and destroyed their purity, caused them to be driven out of the land and ruin their relationship with God. Well, what is redemption? It's putting all that back. How is it done? Through the covenants. By means of God's work through these covenants, the work of Satan in the Garden of Eden is destroyed, and Satan himself is crushed and utterly defeated. God's plan for defeating and overcoming the work of Satan is the covenants. So every one of the covenants are a 
Satan crushing, Satan destroying work of God. And really what we have in the Bible is a, is a cosmic war between Satan and God. Satan struck his blow in the Garden of Eden. And now God is striking his blows through the covenants. And in particular through his son who did crush the head of the serpent on the cross. And uh, now uh, there's just an application of that victory. And ultimately it's going to result in Satan being cast into the lake of fire where the smoke of his torment will ascend up forever and ever. And never again will he be a source of difficulty to God or to his people. Now, now what's interesting is that God has chosen a very long extended process to carry out this defeat of Satan. How long did it take Satan to wreck everything? Like a day or an hour or however long it was. It wasn't long, right? How long has it taken God to fix everything? <laughs> 6,000 years so far. Long time. Why is he dragging it out so long? Okay. Any other ideas about why he's dragging it out so long? Calvin? Okay, oh, I, think, I think that's right too. I think there's a variety of reasons. I don't think there's any one reason, but I think one of the reasons that comes to my mind is that God intends not just to, Satan wrecked it, he fixes it, boom, it's done, we're, we're, we're moving down the road, but he takes this opportunity to fix it as an opportunity to display uh, in, in an in enormous, immense, immeasurable way his own attributes and character and glory and power and wisdom and love and grace. And um, that wouldn't be accomplished in a minute the same way it was accomplished over thousands of years, over thousands of generations of people, over billions of circumstances, over the whole scope of the scriptures. Um, I'm glad God has taken as long as he has because in that length of time, we've learned a lot more about God. And, uh, of course, we've had the opportunity, as Caleb said, for us to be saved, to be born and saved and, and brought into that wonderful process uh, that wouldn't have happened had he just uh, fixed it all right there in the Garden of Eden and been done. And so um, the length of time was taken to have a greater degree of the magnification of the glory of God. I think that's why, Kurt. Well, I just tell Julie, it's because God is big nose. But actually, that's the Hebrew term where it says long of nose, which means that he's long of mercy and long of suffering. But you know, God was humorous. We'll, we'll buy that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in the Greek, okay, when it talks about seeing people face to face, it talks about seeing them mouth to mouth. And so those kind of body image things are in the scriptures, in the original languages. So, so you used to say to someone, you know, I hope, I hope to speak to you mouth to mouth. And, you know, instead of saying, I hope to speak to you face to face. It's, it's, uh, 
It's the word for mouth, not prosopon, which is the word for faith. Face, yeah. Okay, so that's um, the importance of covenants, the definition of a covenant, the five major covenants and what they're doing. We're getting back our purity, we're getting back our land, and we're getting back our relationship. That is huge. So how do we get back our purity? Jesus saves us from our sins, right? How do we get back our land? He gives us the new heavens and new earth. How do we get back our relationship? He presents us faultless before the presence of God. So we get it all back. All right, let's turn to page four. Page four deals with the subject of the Davidic covenant. Everybody got a page four? Kelly, what'd you do with your defective copy? Okay. Do, do you have it, Calvin? Okay, it's over there, all right. Do you have a page four in yours? Yeah, okay, good. All right. Okay, so we talked previously about the Noahic covenant. We talked about the Abrahamic covenant. We talked about the old covenant. And uh, we're not going to go over that material again. You can reread that. As I said previously, every sentence is important. All right? The Davidic covenant is spoken of in 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 23, Psalm 89, and Psalm 132. The parties to this covenant are God and King David and his son. Um, you're not a party to this covenant. Okay? You are not a party to this covenant. There's no sign of this covenant. Remember the sign of the Noahic covenant was the rainbow. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. The sign of the old covenant was the Sabbath. The Davidic covenant doesn't have a sign. That's okay. Not all covenants have signs. All covenants have oath sworn promises, which is the essence, but not all of them have signs, okay? This covenant is a unilateral covenant. That is, God is the one who does it all. Man doesn't do anything. There's no conditions. Uh, it's not dependent upon man's obedience for fulfillment, okay? Unlike the old covenant, which was. Now, in this covenant, God promises David three things. First of all, that he would have a son that, in a special sense, would be the son of God. That, secondly, his son would have a throne that would last forever. And thirdly, that this son would build God a house. Now, all of those three promises are stated in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 17. We looked at those. Now, this covenant has an immediate fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. Okay, the immediate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the son of David would be a special son of God. And, of course, the son of David was Solomon. Solomon had wisdom given to him from God. No other child of God ever had or ever will have. And so God treated Solomon in a very special, unique way as someone to whom he conveyed benefits and blessings that he never conveyed to any other human on the face of the earth. Okay? <clears throat> the second promise, this son would have a permanent throne, was fulfilled in Solomon and the unbroken succession of kings that descended from him. There was a single Davidic di dynasty over Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, clear up until the time of the captivity. 
Now in the northern kingdom, various families would seize the thrones and there was broken family lines that uh, ascended to the throne in Israel, the northern kingdom. There were several different dynasties from several different families. A dynasty is simply uh, a family succession of rulers. Okay, um, We could speak of the Bush dynasty in America. We've had two Bushes as presidents, right? Um, and so in the same way, uh, David had Solomon, uh, Solomon had a son, that son had a son, that son had a son, those sons kept sitting on the throne, okay? And then that son would build God a house, Solomon built God a magnificent physical temple in which God dwelt. You know, the Shekinah glory of God came and, and filled Solomon's temple, you remember the story. However, this was not the only fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, like the Abrahamic covenant had a lesser fulfillment under the Old Covenant and a greater fulfillment under the New Covenant. In the same way, the Davidic Covenant had a lesser fulfillment under the Old Covenant and a greater fulfillment under the New Covenant. So the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic Covenant, the Son of David, would be a special Son of God. Obviously, Christ was the Son of God and the Son of David, Romans 1, 3-4. Uh, he was the son of David. He was the son of God. And then the son would have a permanent throne, Jesus of his kingdom. There shall be no end. That's what the angel announces to Mary at the conception of the Lord Jesus of his kingdom. There will be no end. So Jesus as the physical son of David, sitting on the throne of David forever and ever for all eternity without end. And then the son would build God a house. Jesus is building the new covenant spiritual temple, the church, which God indwells. Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, you're a spiritual house uh, made up of living stones, uh, a holy priesthood uh, to offer to God spiritual sacrifices acceptable through Christ. Okay, so Christ really is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and we see that uh, in, in many passages in the New Testament. And so just below that box chart, it says, By Davidic descent and royal right, Jesus was born king of the Jews, Matthew 2.2. 2. You remember that's what the wise men did. Uh, they came and, uh, Leon, do you have a copy of the... Okay, right, we're on page four, all right? Um, the wise men came and says, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And he was born in the city of David to be a governor of his people, Israel. So from the old covenant, Jesus was foreshadowed as a prophet and a priest. Moses, of course, was the prophet, and um, the Arionic priesthood was the priesthood, and uh, so when we look at the Old Covenant, we see that Moses was not only a prophet, but also a mediator. So in the Old Covenant, Jesus was foreshadowed as a mediator because Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. He was foreshadowed as a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, uh, Moses says, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up like unto me. And he was foreshadowed as a priest in that uh, all the uh, priestly, Levitical, Arionic, high priestly activities, those all foreshadow the person of Jesus. However, in the Davidic covenant is where Jesus is foreshadowed as a king. Now, what's fascinating, people, is there was never anyone in the Old Testament, not one person ever, 
there was ever a prophet, a priest, and a king. There were people who were prophets and kings, like David, but he was never a priest. And there were people who were priests and prophets, like Samuel, but he was never a king. Only the Lord Jesus has all three of those offices, prophet, priest, and king. So he gets his office of prophet uh, in line with the old covenant prophets. He gets his life, uh, his, his, uh, his uh, office as, as priest uh, from the line of, of the old covenant priests. He gets his office as king from uh, his father, David. Now, when did Jesus actually ascend to the throne of David? Well, the Bible makes it clear in Acts 2 and Acts 13 that the resurrection of Christ was his elevation to the throne of David. And we see that also in Psalm 2. We see that also in Psalm 16 as well. <clears throat> so Jesus is doing what today? He's sitting on the throne of David on the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, uh, building his kingdom, uh, just like Solomon sat on the throne as the son of David. Jesus sits on the throne as the son of David. And uh, of his kingdom there will be no end, and he's in the process of building God a house. The fact that Jesus is the son of David ruling over the kingdom is what gives the New Testament its profound emphasis on the subject of the kingdom of God. Now, this is really important to understand, people. You read about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven incessantly in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, and especially in the Gospel of Matthew, which we're going through. And this whole business about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, which are synonyms, by the way, there's no difference between them whatsoever, um, is all about Jesus fulfilling the Davidic covenant and being a king over a kingdom. So as the king, he defeats Satan, liberates his people from their enslavement to him, and conquers and destroys death. And so this image of Jesus as a king is one who is a mighty deliverer of his people from the oppression and the tyranny in which they're in. Now, you remember the story of, of Lot and Abraham. Now, before Lot... Um, got all tangled up in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Prior to that, uh, in, um, in Genesis chapter 15, you remember that these five kings came and conquered um, Sodom and Gomorrah and hauled all the people away and Lot. And Abraham heard about it. So he gathers 318 of his servants and he sails out there and he whips on those kings and he rescues Lot and brings him back. Okay. And so that's the picture of what Jesus does for us, okay? Satan has come, he's taken us captive, he's hauled us away, and Jesus comes and defeats Satan and brings us back and, and, and liberates us. And so that's a picture of, of what our Lord Jesus has done as king. All right, <clears throat> page five. At the top. Jesus' earthly ministry is the beginning of the reversal of the fall, the curse, and the work of Satan. In his earthly ministry, Jesus rules with kingly authority over sickness, over nature, over demons, over people, over sin, and over death. All this is set forth in Matthew 8, 9, 12, 14, 15, and 20. 
Of course, the full manifestation of the kingdom will occur at the second coming of Christ. Now, one of the things we said is that Genesis 3.15 promises that the seed of the woman will reverse the effects of the fall. So what would we expect when the seed of the woman showed up? We would see him overcoming the effects of the fall, which are sickness, death, um, violence in nature, stilling the storm, um, you know, the ground not bringing forth food for the people uh, because it's cursed with thorns and thistles. He's multiplying the loaves. And so Jesus comes and he gives us a foreshadowing of number one, how he's going to defeat the curse. And number two, that he has the power to do so. Now he shows up as king and all his miracles are done by virtue of his kingly authority. I mean, if he's king, right, then he has command of death and sickness and disease and nature and all of these things. And we see him demonstrating it while he's here. Now, of course, the full manifestation of his defeat of the curse and sin and all of its effects waits his second coming. But when he showed up, he gave us a taste of it. And he demonstrated the fact that um, this is the promise of more to come. Well, that brings us then to the new covenant. New covenant is spoken of most clearly and straightforwardly in Hebrews 8, 6 to 13. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is the root out of which the new covenant grows. All God does in the new covenant is the fruit of the Abrahamic covenant. That's why we say the Abrahamic covenant was so critical. Because Abrahamic covenant, right, is in Genesis 12 to 22. All right? Very first book, very first part of the book. And then starting in Exodus 19, all the way to Malachi, the whole Old Testament, is the Old Covenant, which grows out of that Abrahamic Covenant. And then from Matthew to Revelation is the New Covenant, which also grows out of the Abrahamic Covenant. So, um, 38 books of the Old Testament and uh, 27 books of the New Testament, all are based on the Abrahamic Covenant. Makes the Abrahamic Covenant pretty important, doesn't it? Our whole Bible grows out of the Abrahamic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant is the root out of which the new covenant grows. All God does in the new covenant is the fruit of the Abrahamic covenant. All the promises of the Abrahamic covenant find their ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant. They had a partial fulfillment as we saw in the previous chart under the old covenant, but a greater fulfillment under the new so the new covenant now replaces, supersedes, and does away with the old covenant. In the old, and that's why we don't have all the dietary laws. That's why we don't have all the uh, civil laws, um, all the religious ceremonial laws. They're all gone. They went away with the old covenant. They were replaced with the laws of the new covenant. In the Old Testament... <clears throat> the failure of Israel to keep her part in the old covenant was repeatedly noted and God's promise to make a better covenant in the future to replace it with was set forth in numerous places in the prophets, notably in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, all of whom prophesied at the end of the old covenant period when Israel's failure was so obvious that she had to go into captivity and God said, this covenant isn't working because of the failure of mankind, therefore I'm going to replace it with a new covenant. The new covenant is a unilateral covenant. God does it all. We don't do anything. The new covenant is made between God and the house of Israel. 
which began with 11 believing Jews in the upper room and into which house believing Gentiles are engrafted, becoming spiritual Jews as a result of being born of Christ. Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There is now no ethnic or national or personal distinctions between people in the covenant community. They're all one in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're bond or free. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. In Christ, you're all one. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. The means of entrance into the new covenant is by faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The outward sign of entrance into the new covenant is baptism. So how do you become incorporated in the new covenant? By repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. What's the outward public sign that you're in that covenant? Baptism. So everyone who is born again is baptized and thereby declared to be a member of the new covenant community. The promises of this covenant are three. Every member will have a regenerate, that is, a circumcised heart, upon which the law of God will be written. Every member will have a personal saving relationship with God, and every member will have their sins forgiven and forgotten. So God says, I'll write my laws in their heart and put them in their minds. I will be a God to them, and they shall be my people. They shall teach no man, every man, his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So those are the three promises that are wrapped up in that new covenant. Now the result of this new covenant is that every member will possess eternal life in the new heavens and in the new earth that Christ has gone to prepare for us. Now, not everyone who was in the Noahic covenant wound up being saved. And not everyone who was in the Abrahamic covenant wound up being saved. But everyone in the new covenant is saved. Without exception. And while the new covenant community consists of all believers in Christ, both in heaven and on earth, the church militant and the church triumphant, the local church is the visible manifestation of this new covenant community. If you wanted to find the old covenant community, where would you find it? In Israel, around the temple. If you want to find the new covenant community, where is it? In church, around the throne of grace. The local church is where membership in the new covenant community is registered. And the means of grace are deposited. And the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are administered. To have Christianity without the church would be like having Judaism without the temple. It's impossible. The temple was the very heart and the core and the center of Judaism. And it would be unthinkable for anyone to say, I'm a Jew, but, you know, I really don't care about the temple. You know, I, I don't need to go up those three times a year. In the same way, it's unthinkable for anyone to say, I'm a Christian, but church, ah, psh, you know, I can go to church out in the woods. Um, Christianity is built around the church, just like Judaism was built around the temple. And if you don't have a temple, you don't have Judaism. And if you don't have a church, you don't have Christianity. Page six. <clears throat> uh, 
while we see the new covenant blessings fulfilled in our lives now, their ultimate and complete fulfillment awaits the second coming of Christ. This is the already not yet of the new covenant. We already have many of the blessings of the new covenant, but we do not yet have all of the blessings of the new covenant. Many of those blessings break in on us now. We enjoy them now, but many of them yet await the second coming of Christ. So the kingdom is here in part, but the full manifestation of the kingdom is yet to come. And so Jesus can say the kingdom of God is among you. And he can also teach his disciples to say, pray, Lord, thy kingdom come. So is the kingdom here now? You bet. Are you in it now? You bet. Is the kingdom yet to come? Yes, it is. Okay. Many of the effects of the fall are being reversed now but they will be fully reversed when Christ returns. Satan is now bound, but then he will be destroyed. And I might add <clears throat> that the advances of medical science that are beating back disease and increasing longevity, that's all part of the work of Jesus on this earth in reversing the curse. You know, people want to give the credit for a lot of the uh, reversals of the effects of the curse uh, to medical science or to science in general. But the fact that uh, the, the ground is yielding her fruit more easily these days because of advanced technology in farm science and the fact that sickness and, 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 and death is, is being um, healed and delayed to the degree that it has, these are all signs of the work of King Jesus in this world uh, in reversing the effects of the fall. And so we, we continue to make progress. Why? <clears throat> I mean, when you look at the history of the world from creation until the time of Christ, there wasn't much progress. But from the time of Christ to now, there's been enormous progress in the improvement of the human condition. Why? Because Jesus is bringing in his kingdom. And he is reversing the effects of the fall. All right, well, those are the covenants, and I hope you'll save this and stick it in your book. Um, and uh, next week, we'll continue on with the next chapter in our Confession of Faith. So if you have your little spiral-bound outlines, I know there's a bunch of them in here. Um, <clears throat> we'll start going through those. So if you have one at home, be sure and bring it. And if you don't, we have more. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the blessing of the covenants. Thank you for giving them to us. And Lord, especially thank you for the new covenant. Thank you that through it, you have brought to full consummation all of the promises you made in Genesis 3.15 to reverse the effects of the fall. Father, we long for the purity that we once had, for the land that we once occupied, but most of all for the relationship that we lost. Father, we thank you that Jesus is giving us that purity, that land, and that relationship back. Father, we give him glory for doing that, and we worship him forever for restoring it. In Jesus' name, amen.